Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm here at the offices of global media giant WPP and joined by their chief executive, Sir Martin Sorrell. Martin has a reputation for being one of the most successful and ambitious ad men in the world. He cut his teeth in the business at Saatchi & Saatchi, where he's responsible for many of the company's agency acquisitions and became known as the third brother for his close working relationship with Morrison Charles. This passion for deal-making is something that he brought to WPP. Originally a small manufacturer of wire baskets, he invested in the company in 1987 with a view to building a global marketing brand. He succeeded. WPP is now the world's largest advertising company by revenues and employs over 190,000 people in 112 countries and comprises many of the industry's largest names, including Ogilvy, J. Walter Thompson and Mediacom. Martin, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Paul. I, I wouldn't call it a game, actually. You, call, you describe it a, a, a game. This is not a game. This is a business. And how is business, then? I mean, business is tough. We had a record year last year, uh, 2015, and that followed record years, if I remember rightly, 2011, 12, 13, and 14. We had a tough year in 2009 after the Lehman crisis of 2008, and then recovered a V-shaped recovery in 10. And as I say, I had record years all the way through, but uh, and we started off this year well, actually, uh, had a good uh, January and February. But having said that, it, it, it's tough. Clients uh, are facing a world which is growing at about 3 3.5% GDP, you know, 3% uh, real, and 3.5% nominal, which tells you inflation isn't much, which means that clients don't have pricing power, which means that they're putting the focus on cost. Uh, we happen to think, because you, we would say it, wouldn't we? It took, you know, we're speaking to our own book. or uh, But having said that, clients are focused on the cost at a time when we think you only win by focusing on the top line. And so you've got that situation. And the other situation is you have a sort of spectrum. If you think of uh, somebody running a, a business, legacy or even to some extent a new business, but mainly a legacy business, a, a traditional business, at one end of the spectrum you have the disruptors, the Airbnbs and the uh, Ubers. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have the zero-based budgeters, you know, people who are very focused on cost. And in the middle, you have the activist investors who say they're focused on the long term, which they may well be, but the perception is that they're focused on the short term. So maybe they need an ad campaign to, uh, to, get, the, to get the perception switched to the long term. So you have to take those three sets of pressures plus the general economic uh, situation. It's tough for clients. And they're, they're, now, having said all that, uh, we do a, a branding survey with the Financial Times every year where we, we rank the top 100 brands globally. And we're doing that. We will launch uh, another top 100 in China. We do it in Indonesia. We do it in Latin America. We do it in a number of regions of the world. What's interesting about that, if you and I started a fund, an investment fund, and we invested in the top 10 in that FT Brandsy Millwood Brown survey. I am available last... if you'd like to do that. Fine, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. Uh, top 10 companies in, in, in the last 10 years, we would have outperformed the, the MSCI index, which is the world stock market index, by 300%. So, and when you think about the reason why, the reason why is that those companies that invest in their brands, that invest in growing the top line, are the ones that win. That is like-for-like like sales growth, which is what uh, retailers call same-store growth, is the key driver of total shareholder return. So, Investing in brands works, uh, makes sense, and is long-term. It sounds to me like you're very good at guarding against complacency because, you, as you've just said then, you have ups and downs I in wish. business, even at I your wish. level. I wish. Well, we, we, we always make mistakes. 
if it is, if it is a game, which I don't think it is, um, it's that the 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 good decisions or the good things outweigh the bad things, because you always make mistakes, and uh, just when you think everything is going swimmingly, uh, you have challenges. But you know, all in all, over the last thirty years, and the thirty thirty years we've been uh, in existence, uh, it's only three years that the industry, which is a trillion dollar industry, is five hundred billion in let's call the old stuff, and five hundred billion in the the new stuff. Only three years out of those 30 did the industry's revenue in nominal terms shrink. So 91, 92, 2001, 2, that, that year, I mean, straddling the, the two years, and then 2008 uh, or 2009 was the impact of Lehman. Those were the three years where it was really very, very difficult and our revenues suffered just like anybody else. But for 27 of the 30 years, as one analyst wrote, Barclays analyst wrote after our last results a week or so ago, uh, in 27 out of 30 years, it's been good. So uh, can't complain. What gets you out of bed on a morning? And is it the same as what it was, say, 30 years ago? Do you consider yourself a problem solver these days? Are you at your best when you're kind of rolling the sleeves up and sorting something out? Or do you prefer the more planning and strategic side? Well, I, I like both. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's a mistake to focus on the strategic uh, to, to the cost of the detail. Similarly, I think it's the strategic suffers if you just fo- focus on the detail. I'm, they call me a micromanager. I, I do not believe that's an insult. I think that's a, a compliment. Uh, I think attention to detail is very important. And you referred to my, my Saatchi experience. Uh, I would go back and say some of the reasons why uh, Saatchi, I think, found it more and more difficult over time was because they lost the focus on the detail. And you have to have both. You have to have the strategic and the detail. Now, you remember Harold Macmillan said, um, you know, what, what, what sort of in response to the question, what blows you off course politically, events, dear boy, events, dear boy. Uh, I wouldn't put it quite like that, but he was right. Uh, what happens is, and that's a very grand example because a, a business is not like that, but we're like a sort of mini state in a sense. We have 190,000 people directly or indirectly uh, who depend for their livelihood on WPP's success, and we take that very seriously. And if you say, on average, you know, there are two or three people in a family, you know, you're talking about over a half a million people, well over half a million people, in 112 countries that depend for their livelihoods on WPP. And that's the way I look at it. It's not, I'm not saying it's a big family or anything like that, but it's a, a mini, mini state, and we're responsible for that. And then you know, when good things happen, we benefit, and if bad things happen, uh, we suffer, and that's a big responsibility. And when I think that, you know, if if I look back over the last thirty years, we started with two people in a room uh, bigger than one we're in with, you yeah, yeah. <laughs> but not much bigger, and uh, and where where we are today, you know, did I ever envisage it? No. But the answer is, I like the strategic stuff. I went to a business school. When I was very young, uh, inexperienced, my mother said it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Uh, God bless her, but um, I I disagree with that to some extent. But what it did do was to make me very focused on scale. At the age of 40, I went out and started WPP, and I wanted to do it on scale, always did. And maybe it was that those three case studies at the Harvard Business School for two years every day, you know, which started off, what should the chairman and CEO do and why? 
I do like the strategic and you know being in 112 countries and 113th might or might not be Iran the 112th was Cuba we have our man in Havana mm. a man not, not a woman uh, should be a woman um, but there will be shortly uh, so I think there's some 111th was Myanmar so there are big big opportunities still for global expansion and functionally you know obviously broadening our offer but uh, I like the strategic, but I also like the detail because, you know, the devil is in the detail. We invest about $12 billion in people every year out of our $20 billion of revenues, and we have almost $80 billion of billing. And uh, therefore, knowing who we're hiring, who we're investing in, what we're doing is critically important. So uh, I, I think it is important to do the strategic not be moved off the strategic by events, dear boy, mm. and to do the, the tactical. I mean, clearly this isn't a job interview. I don't mind if it is. Well, but, but what not do looking you... for one yet, but you never <laughs> I'm know. I might hire you, you never yeah. know. I have 11 staff, so that's that, last time I checked, that's fewer than, than the number of people well, you, you employ, you, but you, I still feel it quite keenly. Same, you have the same integration issues that we do. We do systems. Once you have more than one person, you have a, you have a integration problem. Communications issues, systems, yeah. and all that kind of thing. Exactly. But I, yeah, you do feel the number on come wages down. I, I do see that. But um, what do you feel are the key skills that have got you to where you are now because it's easy to kind of answer blandly I hate that question I know but is it the power of focus as you've kind of hinted at or is it just sheer graft that's the other that's for others to say you know when you get knighted you have to go to the college of heraldry and um, and design a shield and a motto and uh, I won't tell you what it is in Latin because I, you know, I failed Latin O level and I had to scramble to get Latin O level to get into university uh, but it's basically persistence and speed. That's as far as I will go. I mean, when I sat down with the head of the College of uh, Heraldry and we designed the shield, you know, which reflect, which is quite an interesting experience because it reflects the important influences on your, your life, certainly to the year 2000, which in my case, you try and think about in a motto, you know, what it is that uh, the qualities, whatever. Uh, but others to say, but I would say persistence. Uh, this is not rocket science. What mm. we do, you don't have to be a Nobel Prize winner, and speed, which which actually speed has become important. I mean, this was in two thousand, and speed. You know, I would say uh, probably amend it now to light speed, persistence and light speed, because you you do. I was just talking to a client just now, and he said, you know, it's it's good to see you responding quickly, uh, because I think what clients and indeed people in our own business dislike is a failure to respond and you know whether it's a phone call i try and respond on the day that it's made if i'm not available if it's an email i I think i am pretty notorious for responding to emails pretty quickly i think that's important because it signifies that you think a piece of communication now my wife says sometimes i can't discriminate between the important and the unimportant and i'm too accessible and there may be something in that she may well be right but on the other hand i'd rather be too accessible than inaccessible so i'd rather over compensate that way but how do you this is what interests me because we work for some fairly big clients around the world and, and i found the bigger they are the much less agile they are and and the less you know that well, speed I slows think down that is, that is a good point so this is you know wpp is 30 years old jay walter thompson 150 years old uh, so it's a sort of 30 year old parent if i can put it that way trying to look after a 150 year old child and that puts it and that was a the the copy for a birthday card I got from Bert Manning, who was running running Jay Walter Thompson at the time. I think on 
our 10th anniversary. We, we brought JWT in the group in 1987, so this would probably have been 10 years later. I think it was either five years later or 10 years later. And I thought it was a very cute, as the Americans would say, line. Yeah. Um, and I think it summed it up in... I think now, now, the agility comes from only being 30 years old. Mm. Uh, you know, we haven't had we haven't had enough time to get too many bad habits. And I think that's important. And, you know, a company that is expanding can never expand its overhead as fast as it expands. A company that's contracting can never cut its overhead as fast as it's declining. And I think that's a, a critical issue. We try and stay agile in a digital age by getting our traditional businesses to move as fast as possible into digital by making our digital businesses pursue digital as rapidly as they can. And last but not least, it's what I call the cannibalization area um, or stream, that making investments or buying companies or catalyzing stuff, which, which may actually cannibalize your own business, but if you don't eat your children, somebody else will. So that's where the cannibalization metaphor comes from. Uh, it's a pretty harsh one, but, mm. but it's true because the disruption that I referred, referred to earlier can you know, attack and destroy traditional business. In the last two days, I've been speaking to two of our clients who have a tremendous disruption threat from uh, a major new – I mean, it's from Amazon – Amazon mm. is, a, is, a, is a major threat, just like Google. We, we describe Google as a frenemy or Facebook as a frenemy. Famously, they yeah. are media owners. They're not, uh, they're not technology companies. They like to masquerade as technology companies. Amazon you know, is, is, is really doing everything concerned with purchasing. It's, it's you know, fulfilling an order. It's pricing an order. It's distributing an order, delivering an order, logistics. It's forming its own logistics uh, response. Alibaba is uh, doing the same. So Amazon are delivering via drones now, of course. And I don't well, know well, well, they're talking about doing that, but they're also going to build. They're looking at building small stores, convenience stores, right? So, so uh, it's not just that. And they're they're you know on the delivery side of it, they're actually putting together logistics systems so they can do sort of cradle to grave in terms of in terms of purchasing a fully integrated end to end purchasing, distribution and delivery system. I agree with you about the kind of disruptive nature of Amazon. And For example, I've been in so-called traditional bricks and mortar shops and I've seen people scanning the barcodes of things they could buy from their Amazon app and then it's immediately just sent to them so mm. they get it a lot, mm. a lot cheaper. Mm. What's your assessment of the kind of... If this well, is they a- have an even more spectacular advantage because they see vendors on their site, they see the prices at which those vendors are... And then they beat them. And they can either match or beat. What's your assessment of the kind of media landscape at the moment? Because, like you said, some a lot of kind of traditional broadcasters like the BBC are coming under severe pressure. Well, BBC on the doesn't depend on advertising revenue, but I mean, it does actually um, take advertising the, the the world service. And uh, but they are under pressure in terms of license fee renewal and the charter renewal. But ITV, well, for example, well, quite are, rightly so, because you know, if, I, I don't know what the license fee yields now, but it must be close to four billion pounds. So if you mm. and I, Paul, receive four billion pounds on January the first in cash up front, I think we could build a pretty good brand. That's not taking nothing away from the BBC and I don't know what the size of your budget is but it's a fraction of that quite literally a a large fraction but a a fraction of it Uh, so you know they're in a privileged position and and in a world where there is where the legacy media owners are under tremendous pressure we've seen what's happened to traditional newspapers and magazines felling trees and distributing newsprint we see what's what's starting to happen with perhaps with linear TV Mm. massive changes on the flip side the rise of digital newspapers and magazines and over-the-top television or digital TV 
uh, and the growth of mobile and the internet. Particularly, mobile is a major opportunity yet to be yet to be exploited. So the uh, traditional are, businesses are, are under trouble. Yes, well, they're, they're they're disrupted in the same way, and and it's it's very difficult. You know, I liken it to flying a, a, an aeroplane or being an aeroplane. You, you, you as you're flying, you have to change the engines on the aeroplane. Mm. Whereas one client said to me this morning, you know, you've got two engines. One's the old world, and one's the new world, and you, you know, in order to to change the old world to the new world, you you in a way you have to keep you have to keep flying, keep the engines going, and uh, tinker with them with your spanner. It's more than a spanner; you have to tinker with them at the same time. Would you ever consider kind of dedicating some time, or maybe even full time, to, to public service, like, for example, becoming chair of whatever the BBC Trust is going to become, and kind of no, sorting them out? No. Or, or are you always going to be kind of a no. buccaneering entrepreneur, deal maker no, type? I'm, I'm a buccaneer or not? I, I, I don't think uh, I could uh, I could live with that. No, I think uh, anything of that nature. I mean, the purpose is well defined, but the the levers you have to pull inside those companies you have to be much more diplomatic than than i am and yet if you speak to a lot of people in that like you've said in the in the traditional media whether it be the bbc itv linear broadcasting the the mm. dead tree press whatever you mm. want to call it there's a lot of people who are feeling quite miserable at the moment is that because they've just not innovated enough well it's because there is sort of violent disruptive change taking place and that has a major impact on institutions, businesses, government, uh, everybody dislikes change. I mean, change brings uncertainty and uncertainty is people shy away from. I mean, it's always tough to make um, people decisions because uh, there are always pros and cons. You know, you may have made a decision, you may have made the right decision, but you may have made the wrong decision. It's very difficult to admit uh, often whether you've made made a, a bad decision. So, I think what you're seeing is the impact of violent change. For example, the automobile industry, who would have thought four or five years ago that, that people would be calling the cars you know, mobility devices? Uh, who would have thought that 3D printing, you could 3D print a car, and I've seen one, fully, uh, you know, full-size, two-seater sports car. I've seen a chocolate Three- 3D printed, and that amazed me, not my well, socks off. But, but, you know, full-size car, two seats... 3D printed, I think, in 12 hours at a cost of $5,000. Witchcraft, I with, tell you. With the exception of the wheels uh, and, and the bucket seats. And then you've got Uber. Travis, who runs Uber, is saying, is saying you know, I'm, I'm going to make sure that nobody buys a car. We're all going to share cars. And, you know, he says that, for example, at the Microsoft conference in front of the, the head of uh, General Motors, Mary Barra, and, and says, basically, I'm, I'm sort of going to put you out of business within five years. Now, the pressures... Uh, even in the traditional business like uh, the automobile business, the impact of digital driverless cars. Mm. You know, I was looking at an article I never realised about these convoys of lorries that will go down the motorway four feet separated, I think, by four feet. They will be driverless. You know, there was a They're picture. safer than human drivers as well. Well, they say. The, 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 I mean, it's a bit difficult for the human mind that, and the... And the um, you know the drivers there's a picture of the driver in the in the lorry cab looking at his um, his iPad um, as they're speeding down the motorway. Um, I hope they are safer. Um, well, they, one of the ways of uh, great things is it regulates traffic flow so that you know. Um, so if you have night deliveries uh, to stores, you know it's mm. a much easier way of planning. So you have the night deliveries at night. I remember Boris Johnson saying the biggest problem from a traffic point of view is the white van problem, which mm. is delivering e-commerce product to homes or stores uh, through London. 
do you think, I mean, I mean clearly you're, you're operating in so many countries now. I'd be interested to talk to you about the kind of culture here in Britain, whether you think it enables enterprise. I mean, when I read newspaper articles about your pay packet, for example, I'm a, a, a fellow entrepreneur like you and nowhere near as successful as you yet. But I think, you well... You will be. But, well, that's on the, the basis of this interview, you will be. But, uh, thank you. But I think, well, good on him. He works hard and he deserves his success. But clearly you get your critics, as it were. Well, you, you What's you, it like you, in other countries? You One thing first, you mentioned the, the, the phrase pay packet. So what we've done here, uh, what I've been involved in here, is I started with a, a partner 30 years ago, took a significant stake in the company. Um, it was actually, I think, at its peak, 16%. Today I own 2%. But with the exception of a divorce that I had, uh, where I had to fund a settlement, I haven't sold shares. So uh, my, my pay packet, as you referred to it, uh, I had to sell half of it, sell half of the shares, uh, to fund ta- the tax payment because uh, it triggers an income tax charge, not a capital gains tax charge, an income tax charge. And the other half, uh, I, I leave in WPP shares. So over the years, you know, I've built a significant stake in the company. And I think, you know, if I be too blunt about it, and I may get in trouble for saying this, so here goes. This, this has been, and I, I wrote an article in the FT, I remember a few years ago, And the headline was, I am an owner, and I act like one. It wasn't the owner, by the way. It was Mm -hmm. a very important distinction. I am an owner, and I act like one. And I think that's fundamentally important. When people say they want to be entrepreneurial, it means taking a risk. That's literally what it means. And it means taking a risk, not with other people's money, but with your your money. So everything I have, and I'm on an at-will contract here. In other words, I can be fired this second, or I could leave this second. And there would be, you know, I wouldn't receive any payments or whatever it happens to be and vice versa. So this is very much an entrepreneurial approach. And I make no apologies for the fact that we were worth £1 million in 1985 and today we're worth over £20 billion or put it in dollars, $1.5 million to $30 billion. Uh, I think, you know, I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. And I think well, everybody, everybody in the company should be proud of it. And I'm not embarrassed by that success. Now, as to the question... Do we begrudge entrepreneurs their success, ultimately, in this country? I think the Americans... You know, there is... If you look at the election, and if you look at, you know, parts of the political spectrum, there are parts of the political spectrum which are not dissimilar to the sort of attitudes that you're referring to, which, you know, they have... have, uh, They get traction. But I think it's not as strong and and there's just as strong on the other end of the spectrum that says you know if you go out on your own at 40 years old I you know I gave up a substantial position at Sarge's as CFO I've been doing that for nine years I wanted to do something when my dad said you know who sadly died in 1989 he always said uh, you know find an industry you enjoy find a company you enjoy build a reputation that industry, not to be interviewed on Media Masters, mm. but, but you know where people would recognise you as being somebody who knew what you were doing uh, in the industry. And then, if you feel like doing something on your own, uh, go off and do it on your own. And that's what I basically did. I did it at the age of forty, which is the midpoint. It was the midpoint. I think probably forty-five is the new forty, or, mm. and probably you don't retire at sixty. Maybe sixty-five is the the new the new sixty. Although I might believe it's a bit a bit longer because I'm I'm perfectly willing to to carry on as long as they'll have me uh, one day they'll take me out to the 
the potting shed um, and shoot me if that's the right an, uh, analogy. But you know, I, I do think I think the attitudes in America uh, are slightly different. But this is basically what I saw this ad when we started in 1985 as an entrepreneur. I'm going to use the word exercise, not the right an entrepreneurial approach that I was going to put money at risk and build the business and my wealth. You know, my father said also. He didn't believe in portfolio investment. Mm. That was almost like gambling. Pick one thing and stick at it. Yes, it's almost like he said, the company that you know best is the company you work in, Mm. and therefore that's the best investment, which goes counter to every piece of investment advice. You know, the investor advisor will say, diversify the risk, you've got too much risk, it's all in one bucket, etc. That, you know, maybe the right attitude, maybe the wrong, but I... So, you know, when when people focus on, on, on my pay packet, as you called it, Remember, half went in tax, and the other half stays in the company as an investment. No, I mean, as I say, as a fellow entrepreneur, I applaud the fact you're creating jobs and you're generating the profits to pay that well, tax. Well, that, that's another thing, Paul, because here in the UK, we've gone from four or five years ago from 12,000 people to 16,000 people. Congratulations. At a time, at a t- well, I mean, it, it, it's, it goes beyond that at a time when employment opportunities, particularly for young people, are meant to be... Uh, scarce and, and few and far between and we are making an effort to do that so what's your view on someone like corbyn then because i, I mean i've been a party labor party member for 20 odd years i loved did you it vote un- for corbyn i absolutely nutly did not okay. I, i'm a huge blairite and one of the few remaining ones i applaud enterprise and you know i want to be pro-business but there yeah. seems to be an anti-business sentiment with politics these days well, among some, uh, but you know in a way it's understandable because in 2008 we had that terrible event in the September weekend when Warren Buffett said, uh, you know, said this was America's financial Pearl Harbor, GE was Mm. supposedly uh, looking at whether it could finance its commitments or not. This was, you know, we were staring into the abyss. And it's interesting that the fall in the oil price, which de facto is a tax cut, has not resulted in increased consumer spending. And I think that's because it's seared into the consciousness of consumers and corporates what happened. And then corporates also, you know, average life of a CEO in America is about seven years. Average life of a CFO in America is about six years or five years. CMO, chief marketing officer, is two years. And if we were talking, Paul, a year ago, it would have been 18 months. So hallelujah, it's up by a third in a year, but it's still two years. But people are not going to think long term. They're going to be cautious. There's $7 trillion of net cash sitting on the major multinationals' balance sheets, relatively ungeared. The S&P... 500 in 2014 bought back more shares and paid out more in dividends a greater amount than retained earnings so effectively the S&P 500 was one company, it shrank I think, I haven't seen the data for 15 but I would guess it's exactly the same if that is the case, in two years corporate America, which includes earnings abroad, shrank in size because they gave back to shareholders they returned more capital to shareholders as a whole than they made do you find it particularly difficult to recruit these days? I know you've, you've commented in the past about the kind of young talent drain and saying how difficult it is. But, I mean, I found this when I advertise a position. I'll get 200 applicants on LinkedIn and 190 of them are total dross. The people who just click the button. Of the 10 that have made the effort, there's worth three or four worth um, seeing. It, it is. It's not easy. I mean, if you look at all the demographics in the major economies and even the so-called young economies, you know, everybody's going to have the Russian Chinese problem, you know, the aging problem, whether it's a Mexico or a Pakistan or indeed in Iran, uh, which all of them have very young populations. Or I was in 
Dubai and uh, the UAE, they, they have a young population. I was in Turkey this week, a very young population too. But yet all of them uh, are facing this demographic issue uh, in the long term. So we will, if you think there's a war for talent now, stand by, it's going to get worse. And, it, and it's not just for professional service companies like our own, it's, it's also for manufacturing companies as well. So there is going to be a premium, you know, finding, incentivizing, motivating, keeping, keeping key people, and good people. Uh, having said that, do we find it a problem now? No, we, we, we run a, a WPP, well, it's not no, I wouldn't say as extreme, you know, as extreme as you portrayed it. We have the WPP Fellowship Program in its 20th year. We we try and recruit undergraduates and postgraduates and people from art schools and design schools and you know from different varying backgrounds to join us for a three-year program, uh, three different functions. So it could be advertising, data investment management, media in three different geographies in three uh, three uh, continents. Um, and it's a it's a program which is more difficult to get into, according to the Wall Street Journal and the Harvard Business School. So we do the X Factor with uh, our senior female leadership. We do uh, the Stella program with uh, we're broadening that approach with our female leadership. Uh, we have you know over half the people in the company are women, and that is true at a junior and mid management level, whatever that means. But at the senior levels, it's only a third. So we have to we have to have more. You mentioned manufacturing just briefly there. I mean, do you think there's any point us having a manufacturing base yes, these days? Yes, high-end. Look at the Germans. The Germans do a fantastic job on it. We don't seem to do it particularly well, though. Would you agree? No, I would disagree with that because I think that's that's ignoring that there are many successful small and medium-sized companies. Could we could and engineering companies in particular, high-end? Could we do more? Yes. Uh, it's interesting. Iran, would you believe, is the third biggest country in terms of producing engineers after the US and China. Incredible. It is incredible. With 80 million people, it's the third largest country in the world in terms of producing engineers. Uh, so I, I think we, we can do it. We just have to put more focus on it. Uh, there's no reason. I mean, our, our people, we have a tremendously diverse population here, and that's a point of controversy at the moment. My grandparents were immigrants. I'm a second-generation immigrant. I'm technically half Ukrainian, I think a quarter Polish and a quarter Romanian. And the the, the debate on Brexit, I, I find, you know, there are three buckets on Brexit. The economic argument, which I think is clear-cut that we should stay in. The sovereignty argument, which there are sides to both questions, but I'm prepared, personally, I would to pay the be price, prepared I to give some power. It does irk order, a lot of people, in, though. In order to be part of it. And then the third one is what I would call the immigration bucket, mm. where, you know, I did a debate with... Uh, at a private occasion with an ex-conservative government minister, we were talking about those three buckets basically. And after a couple of hours, you know, he was going on about um, uh, the the negatives on immigration. And I asked him, I said, "Well, are you saying that immigration has been an, an, a net negative for the UK economy?" To which he said, "Yes." And really? It was the in- yes, and the influx of uh, unskilled immigrant labour. I, that's when I completely tune out, and I think the debate gets rather—it certainly gets stressed—and mm. uh, I gets rather dangerous. And the rise of uh, extremists, you know, whether it be Le Pen in France or wherever, uh, is indicative of that. 
I mean, we seem to be doing reasonably well here insofar as the British National Party has dissolved out of existence. But I agree, there's a kind of well, soft... Well, we have the UKIP party, yeah, which sort of... Soft sort of, race. The BNP and Blazers, they were once called. When I, I stood well, for Parliament in 2005 against a, a UKIP candidate, and I called them that, and uh, that he didn't take too kindly. In fact, he threatened to punch me on the nose. <laughs> but, uh, did he? Yeah, he did. He didn't do it, but he, he, uh, he did threaten me. It was like that. a Trump rally, was it? No. I, I, well, I'll ask you about Trump in a second. But, I mean, we've had Linton Crosby sat behind that microphone where you are right now. and He, he um, did it. A great job in the election, amazing job. Well, he did, and he's—I mean—he came out a few days ago and says there's a lot of kind of what, closet outers, and he seriously thinks that we might vote to to leave. Well, Do you think, it, think that's I a possibility? Think, I think it's very going to be very close. I think there are forty, according to our polls, and I know the polls are discredited, but um, I mean we and we were in that group. Forty percent roughly say we should stay in. Forty percent roughly say we should come out, and twenty percent don't know. And the twenty percent that don't know say they don't know because they don't know, i.e., they don't have enough information which means that campaign over a nine-week period where you can spend on either side a maximum of £7 million or $10 million is going to be critical. So I would agree with him. I mean, there is... Uh, whether I, I don't know. I'm, he, he clearly has looked at it in more detail than I have. I, I don't know about the closet outers. I do think it's rather like the Scottish referendum that as we get closer, people will become more and more concerned about the economic arguments that, that I touched on. And the sovereignty argument will get less. I mean, if we come out, quite apart from the short and medium-term dislocation, which I believe will be very considerable... Indeed. ..there will be the impact on Europe. You know, will other countries want a referendum? Will the Hungarians or the Poles or whatever want a referendum? The Scots have said, uh, on the other side of the equation, uh, the Scots have said they want to stay in. If we come out, does that mean that Nicola is going to demand... Uh, another referendum uh, does that mean that ultimately we're going to have the collapse of the United Kingdom I don't think people have really f- sort of focused on that one yet now mm. that conserv- ex-conservative minister I mentioned said the Scots will never come out so the best way to ensure that Scotland stay, stays stays in is to vote Brexit yeah, really? <laughs> because the Scots will never come out with the oil price so low I think that's missing the point if we come out it will be I think for emotional reasons, yes, not for rational, uh, economic, political and social reasons. Uh, and I think the same thing would be true in, in the Scottish case, that people would make that decision for understandable. Mm. Uh, and remember that, that the Scottish referendum was 16 plus. The EU referendum is going to be 18 plus. I went to a school did a session at a school with 300 or so uh, sixth formers and I asked them in the course of the discussion we had how many of them would vote stay in about 90% put their hands up to remain in to remain in that's oh, 10% yeah but but th- these were 16 year olds oh, right so <laughs> they I was thinking we should have had it 16 <laughs> plus do you think though just carrying on the theme of what you've just said there that, that there seems to be a huge disconnect with sort of quote unquote normal people with the kind of Westminster bubble now and and even in kind of a lot of western economies look at the rise of Trump you, you know people right. seem to be quite hostile to politicians now well I think that, that's right I think whether it's the left or the right whether it's Trump or Sanders whether it's Nigel Farage, whether it's uh, what we've seen in Spain, whether it's Beppe Grillo in, in Italy, whether what we've seen in Greece. I mean, these are all Le Pen in France, uh, Le Pen family in France. Mm. The, these are all sort of variants on the same theme. In fact, you know, Trump and Sanders, although they don't share perhaps uh, views on the political spectrum, they are populist movements. Neil Ferguson, we did a, a panel with him and Eric Cantor, 
and Don Baer of Burson Marstella and myself and John Micklethwaite uh, of uh, Bloomberg uh, at Davos. We did a panel on the election, on the, the, the Trump verse. Well, at that time, it wasn't quite so apparent. And Neil Ferguson said, well, Trump is a populist phenomenon. By March, he'll be gone. I saw him recently. And Neil said, well, maybe I made a mistake. That must be the first time that he's ever... He's ever admitted to making a mistake. <laughs> and I remember a woman put her hand up during the course of the panel. She said she was a fundraiser for Hillary, American woman here in London. Uh, and uh, she she spent most of her time trying to explain the Trump phenomenon. And I said to her, look, don't underestimate this. This is, you know, anybody who picks up, and Linton Crosby will be well aware of this, anybody who picks up 35, 40, you know, in some states he's picking up 47% of a Republican vote. So this mm. is the, the 300,000 people who voted Jeremy Corbyn. And mm. this is the... You know, the three-pounders. Three, yeah, the American... Don't forget, the American system, the primary system, some of them, these are uh, open caucuses where Democrats can come in and vote in a Republican primary. So you tend to get, I would say, the extremists, whether in a, in a general election the candidates will tack to the centre, in the primary elections they will tack to the extremes because they are trying to engage uh, people who are more passionate, let me put it that way. And I think Trump is like that. I think you already pick up that Trump is moving more to the centre you also pick up that Trump doesn't have specific policies, but, you know, he could probably cut and paste. I mean, he could probably go and look at every candidate. <laughs> he could probably go to Jeb Bush website and just just take what he considers the best and go to uh, Ted Cruz's website and see if he can find anything there, etc., etc. So uh, I don't underestimate uh, Trump. And, and Trump's daughter, Ivanka, who I know a little bit, uh, is is superb. She's absolutely marvelous. Any Any man that can produce a daughter like that uh, hasn't done everything wrong and do you think i mean to what extent does the, the leader of uh, you know of any country have any genuine impact because you know harold wilson once family said it doesn't matter which party is in power the treasurer is in power would you be frightened as an entrepreneur and as a businessman if trump became president would you think that could actually harm your the prospects for for your group of companies well interesting uh, interestingly if you uh, we don't know what trump stands for i mean it, it may be that carl icahn would be the treasury secretary we don't know he said he will attract. Don't forget, we. You're too young to to remember. This shows how old. And Ronald Reagan was regarded as being a film star. What how the devil could he run the country? Well, he'd run California pretty well. Arnold Schwarzenegger is another example. Jesse Ventura, an ex wrestler, becomes you know governor in what was it Minnesota. I understand he had a good first term of four years, but the second term wasn't quite so good. So, a lot of these things. Seem the conventional to be wisdom worse. could be wrong. Well, it seems to be worse. the realities of power mean and and the problems as well as the opportunities mean that you have to take a more realistic approach but having said that uh, do i think donald trump would be from a business point of view you know who knows right what is a typical week for you and i and i know the answer will be there's there is no typical week but you know what are the kind of behind this behind the scenes details that you look out for i get up early in the morning i i catch up with everything uh, that happened overnight um, usually get up at about six o'clock in the morning. Um, I, I usually uh, have a, a breakfast whether I'm in London. I spend a third of my time in London, a third in New York, and a third travelling. And uh, I have a breakfast. I have several meetings in the morning. Uh, usually business lunch in the afternoon, three or four meetings, um, maybe a business dinner, uh, and carry on to quite late. Then go to bed about n- until about eleven or twelve. I, I often. I miss Jeremy Paxman actually. I watch Newsnight every 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 night. Um, Charlie Rose maybe in America. I, I watch Squawk Box in the morning when I woke up or Bloomberg. 
I stream Bloomberg during the the day, and in in America I watch uh, Squawkbox and Bloomberg there. So you know that's that's uh, obviously read the newspapers uh, now digitally, not not. So they're on the iPad then, are they rather than the? Yes, yep. they are. They are, uh, and I'm not reading newspapers as much as I used to. I mean, that's uh, but they are. They do engage uh, to this point about whether newspapers are losing ground. It's not just a question about views. Not about just about three-second Facebook views where 50% of the time the, the sound is turned off. It's about how much time and attention. And newspapers, you know, I think there is an argument that engagement with traditional press and uh, indeed magazines, you see magazines with women. I mean, women certainly do like magazines uh, to a significant degree. So engagement is just as much as important as circulation. That's a typical day. And the weekend... Uh, you know, I'm I'm fairly. It's twenty four seven. And seven. Well, like you say, twenty four seven. You never have time to switch off. You're not at well, risk of burnout. Never sleep. Yeah. It never sleeps. It, it's it's going on Christmas Day and Rosh Hashanah and uh, and everything else. Last question then. What's next for you? Well, I, I think we have to continue to build build the company. I mean, obviously, I have a finite life. He's like, quite spry like, and sprightly. I, I'm try. I try hard. I try not eat too much. Uh, particularly given that schedule I outlined. There was a lot of lunches but, and dinners mentioned yeah, yeah, there. Yeah, you try and try and reduce the intake and do a little bit of exercise. But having having said that, play cricket um, and a bit of skiing, although cricket's not that much exercise, people would, would think, no, I'll carry on as long as they'll have me. I, I find it more, more fascinating, more interesting than it's ever been. The tentacles of the company, if I can put it that way, reach far and wide, and we, we do an awful lot from a business point of view, socially, politically, sustainability purpose. I mean, it's, it's, it's an exciting, exciting thing. Uh, so, Martin, I've done a terrible job uh, this morning of hiding the fact that you're one of my heroes and I'm hugely oh, inspired by your journey. You so, say that to all uh, the boys and girls. <laughs> but I really have appreciated the time you spent today, no, no, too. Pleasure. And pleasure. I've learned an awful lot. Thank all you. Right. At least one thing, maybe. Thank you. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!